all believers are supposed to work out. Not only are believers supposed to work out, but working out is as much a part of being a follower of Christ as pursuing holiness. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about working out our muscles, but working out our salvation. The idea of working out our salvation, it might come as a shock to some who have been taught that salvation is when you make a decision for Christ, you pray a prayer, and then you wait to go to heaven. Now, sadly, many of our day have been taught that salvation changes nothing but our eternal destiny. There's no change of our life in the here and now. There is no newness of life. There is nothing but a decision, a prayer, and then waiting to go to heaven. But I wonder, if someone just took the Bible, had no commentaries, they had no other sermons that they'd ever heard, and all they had was the Bible, and they read through... Let's just say the teachings of Jesus or, or Paul. As they read through those things, would they come to the conclusion that salvation was about making a decision, praying a prayer, and then waiting to go to heaven? I don't think so. I mean, even in the passage, just the one passage I read at the start of service this, after, this morning, Jesus called on us to forsake all to follow Him. To, to love Him more than family or even our own life. I mean, that's certainly not make a decision, pray a prayer, wait to go to heaven. Now, parts of this idea, this make a decision, pray a prayer, are correct. For instance, the idea of prayer in connection to salvation is rooted in the Bible. Romans 10 tells us that to be saved, we must believe in our hearts and we must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We're also told in Romans 10 that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That sounds a lot like prayer to me. The idea of a decision is also rooted in Scripture. Right? The, when the Holy Spirit deals in our life, to show us our need for salvation. He convicts us of our sin. Shows us that we lack any righteousness of our own. That we are under the just judgment of God. And He points us to the Savior that died on the cross for our sins. Now once that revelation has been made by the Holy Spirit. We rightfully have a decision to make. Will we decide to follow the Holy Spirit to Christ and salvation? Or will we decide to stay like we are. So the decision part isn't the problem. The problem is the that's it part. The problem with that view is, is thinking that that's all there is. That we make that decision, we pray that prayer, and then nothing. That's the problem. I think we forget that the sincerity of a decision is seen in its follow-up. And we know this in the physical world. Right, let's say I decide I'm going to, when we're talking about working out, I decide I'm going to work out. And I'm going to go every morning and I'm going to diet and exercise to get in the shape I was when I got out of the army. Now that's a decision I've made, a plan I have. But when is that decision, when is my commitment to that decision really seen? Well, it's going to be seen at 5 o'clock in the morning when my alarm goes off. Will I get up? Will I be at the gym at 5.30? If I am, then it shows I'm committed to that decision. The, the commitment to the decision will be seen when somebody offers me a Krispy Kreme donut. Will I take it and eat it and say I'll start tomorrow? Or will I say, no, I've got a goal and a plan I'm shooting for. I'm going to let that go. See, if I eat it, then the decision didn't mean much. But if I follow it through and I resist it, then the decision was significant. And in a lot of ways, the decision to follow Jesus is very similar. The, our commitment to that decision, it starts with the decision. It starts the prayer of calling upon the name of the Lord. But it doesn't end there. 
our commitment to that decision will be seen every day of our lives. And every day we're going to have opportunities to do things that Jesus has said we should not do. And my commitment to that decision will be seen in how I respond. Every day I'm going to have opportunities to do the things that Jesus said I should do. And my commitment to that decision will be seen in whether or not I do them. When you read the New Testament, it is clear that salvation certainly impacts our eternal destiny and changes that forever. But that's not all that it does. It changes the way that we live right now. It changes the way that we live day in and day out. It changes our actions, our reactions, our priorities, and really everything. It changes the way we view the world around us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that shows us this truth and it instructs us on how to work out our salvation. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. That is page 900 in the Pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2 and 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The title of the message is Work Out Your Salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we love You. You are great and awesome and worthy. You have given us hope. You have given us salvation. You have given us the forgiveness of sins. You have given us Your presence. You have given us Your Spirit. You have given us great and mighty promises. For those things we rejoice. For those things we are eternally grateful. Jesus, we know that you paid an awful price to provide these things for us. As we come to the time for Easter, we think more about that that last week of your life and that last day of your earthly life where you gave up your life in place of us. And we ask You, help us never to get over the cross. Help us never to gloss over that story and and miss all that happened there on that day for us. Help us not to look at the cross and think that You went through all of that to change our eternal destinies, but to leave us alone in this life. Help us to understand, as the Apostle Paul did, that you gave your all for us, that we might give our all for you. Today, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to receive your word. We really do want to live for you. We want to be all that you want us to be, and we want to do all that you want us to do. So let your Holy Spirit open up our hearts to receive your word. Help our our attitudes to be submissive to You, that we would surrender to You to do what You want done. Right now, search our hearts and try us and see if there's anything in our lives that's not as it should be. And when You find something that's not what it should be, convict us of it. Deal with us about it. Deal with us as sons and daughters that You love. Show us that You have a better plan and a better path for us. The way that we're on. Draw us to You in repentance and faith. Today, we ask You to do what only You could do in our midst. We ask You to save the lost, to restore the backslider, to encourage the discouraged, to strengthen the weak, and just guide us all to follow You in everything that we do. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what You once said. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now one of the things that you see 
when you read through the book of Philippians, or really any of the letters that Paul wrote, and then he was concerned about the spiritual life of believers. Paul knew that salvation was more than making a decision, praying a prayer, and then waiting for Jesus to take you to heaven. He knew that a thriving relationship with Jesus, a thriving spiritual life, took effort. And he knew without the effort, even the most sincere believer would drift back into the way of life they had lived prior to their salvation. And so, where we're at, Paul writes from a prison cell. And he tells these people that he loves, that he thanks God upon their every remembrance. And he writes to them and he tells them that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And the words used for work out, it carried with it the idea of there being a constant ongoing matter in our daily lives. That's something that, that continually happened. Not a one-time decision and a one-time prayer, but really a decision that we make daily. A decision that we make constantly, consistently in our life so that we can do the things that Jesus wants us to do. So the idea I want you to understand, the main thought, is that believers must be diligent to work out their salvation. And, and I say, let me kind of break this down a little bit before we go further. But it starts with believers. Right, this passage is not addressed to unbelievers. Unbelievers don't need to work out their salvation. They need to embrace Jesus and receive that salvation. Secondly, it says diligent. This is going to be a consistent thing. This is going to require effort on our part. This isn't something we're going to say yes to today and that be it. Right? Because we live in a world that pulls against this. Right? We have spiritual enemies. The world around us, the flesh within us, and the devil just all over the place. And they're always at work to pull us in the opposite direction. And without diligence, we'll drift in the wrong direction. And again, with salvation, this is for believers. This is something we do because we're saved, not something we do to be saved. So what does it mean to work out our salvation? And how do we work out our salvation? So I want to give you from this text three essentials to working out your salvation. Number one, embrace my personal responsibility. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, Paul says in the very first that the Philippian Christians were very careful to obey him or to follow his instructions when he was there. Now, obviously, he's talking about when he when he was with them, he helped planted the church and he preached. He would preach God's word and they were very diligent to take what he said and to live it out in their lives. They were doers of the word and not hearers only. And he tells them in verse 12 that, that now that he's away from them, it's even more important for them to take what they learned and to put it into practice. He wasn't there to teach them on a regular basis. He wasn't there to preach to them so they could hear it. Instead, they would have to learn to listen to Jesus and the Holy Spirit and put that into practice. And he says, as they do, they must work out your own salvation. And what stands out to me in this last part is that he says, your own salvation. And I want you to think about that. Your own salvation. This is something that is between you and God. Not you and your wife and God. Not you and your husband and God. Not you and your parents and God. Not you and anyone else in the world and God. It is you and it is God. And the idea here is that you're to work out what God is doing in your life. Now, let me ask you, what is God doing in your life? What are some things that, that God is showing you in your life that you need to change? Things that you need to do. And what I think is that we need to see here is how this connects to Paul's statement about him not being there. See, when Paul was there, he could preach to them and he could say, here's what Jesus said, here's what you need to do. And then they were doers of the word and they took it and they did it. But now Paul wasn't there. Paul wasn't there to give them 
a sermon with three points and a poem and to send them on their way. Now they were going to have to learn to get into what they knew as scripture for themselves, to study that out, to pray that out, to call upon the Lord and ask him to guide them and direct them in their lives. But it was the idea that now, in a lot of ways, they needed to grow up. They needed to move beyond the stage where somebody would feed them. They could feed themselves. They could get into the Word and they could study it out and they could come to it themselves. So, what is God doing in your life when it's just you and God? But I'm in favor of reading books and listening to sermons. I, I buy books, I read books, I read commentaries, and I listen to sermons frequently. God uses these things in my life to help me and to challenge me in my own spiritual life. But the most important way that God speaks to me, the most important way that God deals with me, is through my time in the Word. It is through my time with God. Those times when it is just me and God. That is the most important. And that is the most powerful time there is. Should be the same with you. So I study and I pray for the sermons that I preach. My desire is that God would work through what I do to help you to grow and to become more of what Jesus would have you to be. And I, of course, I believe it's important to come to church to hear the preaching of God's Word. But as important as that is, it is every bit as important, if not more important, for God to be working in your life through your time with Him. So let me ask you a question. Who is responsible for your spiritual life? Who is responsible for your relationship with Jesus? Who is responsible for your growth in Christ's likeness? Who is responsible for you to find and use your spiritual gifts? Who is responsible for you and your God and your relationship? You are. And you alone. I am responsible for my relationship. Me alone. And that can be a difficult thing to embrace for some. We live in a blame culture. We live in a culture where nothing is ever anyone's fault and it hasn't been for a very long time. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot blame your spouse, your parents, your children, other church members, your co-workers, anything. On the fact that you don't have a thriving spiritual life, that you don't have a close relationship with Jesus, that you're not growing in Christ-likeness. When you look in a mirror, you are seeing the person Responsible. You and you alone are responsible. You must embrace your personal responsibility to grow, to work out your salvation. And this requires diligence and effort. Now, let me show you this from another passage. Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, we don't have time to look at all that passage in First Peter, Second Peter 1. But I would encourage you to take time this week and read it. This morning, there's just a couple of things I want to bring out. First, look at the end of what is posted. Add to your faith. And here's what we should take from that. Faith is the beginning, not the end. Salvation begins with faith in Jesus and His promises. Right, salvation begins with faith in Jesus and faith in His promises. These things are always necessary. However, we do not merely believe in Jesus, but we then work to add things to our faith. Faith is the foundation of salvation, but there are things we are supposed to add to that. The second thing I want you to notice is that we're to give all diligence. 
Uh, in some translations, it says work hard. And it doesn't matter which translation you have, the idea is clear in all of them. It takes effort to add things to our faith. Because, again, the world around us does not naturally add to our faith. Our own internal wiring does not lead us to naturally add to our faith. Instead, we have to give all diligence. We have to work very hard. There are things that we must do if we are to add to our faith. And we must work hard to do them. We must be intentional about them. And you are responsible to add them to your faith. And I am responsible to add them to my faith. If I am not who I should be in Christ, it is not your fault. And if you are not who you should be in Christ, it is not my fault. I am responsible for me. You are responsible to you. And so you must give all diligence to add to your faith. Now, let me quickly show you the things that Peter says were to add to our faith. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. These are the things that we are to add into our faith. These are the things that we are to be growing in. Right? We, should, we should have higher morals today than we did when we were saved. We should have a better knowledge of Christ and His will today than we did the day that we were saved. We should have more self-control than we did on the day that we're saved. We should be able to persevere through hardships more now than we were on the day that we were saved. We should be godlier now than we were on the day that we were saved. We should love others more than we did on the day that we were saved. And we should have a general Christ-like love for all people more now than we did on the day that we were saved. And who is responsible for you growing in these graces and virtues? You are. And I am responsible for me. You and I are supposed to give all diligence to add these things to our faith. You and I, we are responsible for whether or not we are growing in these areas. Now, one of the things you have to know is that if you're really having a time with you and God, then God should be working in your life to help you to develop these things in, in your life and add these things to your faith. Is He? How do you see that? As believers, we must be diligent to work out our salvation. And this begins by embracing our personal responsibility. So you embrace your personal responsibility, but you also want to always do God's will and God's power. Verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. There are several parts of this that are important. First, it is God who works in you. And I checked several translations this morning when I was reviewing the message, and all of them gave the indication that God is working in you. In fact, I think the New Living Translation does say God is working in you. So here's what this says. The Bible teaches that as believers, God is working in me. God is working in you. So the question, is He? Is God working in you? Those times when it's you and God, alone with His Word and His Spirit, is He working in you? Now, according to the Bible, he should be. According to the Bible, he should be. But what is he working in us for? Well, he says, God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. First, he talks about God, basically the idea of God giving us the will for his good pleasure. What this means is God gives us a desire to do what pleases him. Keep in mind. By the Bible, all people are spiritually dead apart from Christ. They have no desire for the Lord. So anytime an unbeliever has a desire to know anything about Christ or God or the Bible, that desire comes from somewhere other than themselves. It comes from God. God gives them that desire. 
as believers, we are not spiritually dead. We are alive, but we still suffer with a sinful nature that pulls us against the things that God wants to do in our lives. And so we, even as redeemed people, don't always have right desires. And so when we have a desire to to do anything for the Lord, that desire always comes from God. It comes from somewhere outside of us. So God is working in us, giving us new desires. And it could be, the desires could be any number of things. It could be a desire to lead somebody to Christ. It could be a desire to pray and have a more consistent prayer life. It could be a desire to know the Bible better. It could be a desire to find and use our spiritual gift. It could be a desire to be more consistent as a Christian, to get sin out of our lives. But whatever the desire is, the desire, it comes from the Lord as He works in you. So the question, what desire is God giving you? But as you're alone with God and His Word and His Spirit, what desires is He placing in your life? Do you have a, a renewed desire to know Him better? Do you have a renewed desire to live a holy life? Do you have a renewed desire to help others come to know Him? Do you have a desire for a deeper prayer life? It could be any number of things that could be done for His glory. But it should be there. There should be something that we can say, this is a desire in my life that God is giving me. Now, along with a desire for something is a discontentment for the way things already are. Not because we don't really seek to make changes in our lives until we're discontented with the way that they already are, do we? Now, since God is giving us a desire to do something, He's also going to give us a discontentment with the way things are in our lives. So let's say it's a prayer life. God gives us a desire for prayer. What does He first do? He makes us, he gives us a, a lack of contentment about the way our prayer lives currently are. We're just not satisfied with it. It's just not what it should be. Before God gives us a desire to reach somebody, we're just like, there needs to be more people that know Jesus. Before God gives us a desire to live a holy life, He makes us realize, gosh, I hate living the way that I currently live. I don't want this sin to be a part of my life. And because there is always a, a level of discontentment that God is making in our life to give us new desires, this is why when we are spiritually complacent, we should be concerned. Right? We should always be concerned if we're happy where we are. Because unless you're just like Jesus, God isn't finished with you yet. There's still changes that need to be made, things that need to be done. And rather than arriving, you've just settled for something far less than God desires to give you. So what are you discontent with? What in your life is not what you want it to be? What has God given you a desire to make changes in that? Well, God not only gives us the desire to change, which is good, but He gives us something more, which is great. For God is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now, the to do basically means that He gives us the power we need to make it happen. It means that the Greek word used, it means to energize. And the idea is that God gives us the power we need to make whatever changes He is giving us the desire to make. So any desire God places in our heart, anything God leads us to want to do, it can be done. We are able to accomplish it because God will give us everything we need in order to ensure that we can. So God gives us a desire, and then He gives us the power to see that desire through. Let me show you a couple of passages to think through, so you can see that. 
Philippians 4.13 is very familiar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, we teach our kids to memorize those, that verse. So they, can't, they won't say, well, I can't do it. And then we grow up as adults and we say, I can't do it. Well, according to the Bible, if God has given you that desire, actually, yes, you can do it. You really can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Now, Ephesians 3.20, we usually look at in reference to prayer. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, that's great. I mean, think about that. God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. So we can imagine. The biggest thing we can imagine God doing. He can do more than that. Without even stressed out. That's just how big and powerful God is. But notice the last part. According to the power that works in us. So the exceeding abundant power that can do more than we would ask or imagine. It is already at work in us. And what this means for us on a practical level is we can do more through God than we would ever dare to ask or imagine is possible. Not because of us. Because of God who works in us. See, God doesn't give us a desire and then leave us to fail. God gives us a desire then gives us the power to make it happen. So, a question. What desires is God giving you? But also, what is different in your life because of what God is doing in you? What are you doing differently in your life that result from your time alone with God? So we should all be able to point to specific things that are different or things that we are working to make different because of the way God is working in our lives. Here's what makes this so challenging. God not only gives me the will, but God gives me the ability to do it. So if God has given me a desire to do something for His glory, what is the only reason I'm not doing it? I'm not because I can't. I'm not because I'm unqualified. Simply because I won't. Simply because I won't. You know, it's easy to let doubt or fear keep us from doing the things that God has placed in our hearts. It's easy to let doubt or fears cause us to think we can't do the things and, and fulfill the desires that God has placed in our heart. And yet, Scripture clearly teaches that we actually can whatever it may be. And whatever the desire is, the only thing that will keep me from fulfilling that desire, the only thing, is my unwillingness to do what God wants me to do. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but that strikes me like a baseball bat across the head. Because I can't Say, oh, my dreams are too big. It's just not realistic. I can't say, well, I'm just not gifted in that area. I'm just not able. I can't say I'm just not wired in a way to do things along those lines. Because none of those things matter in the big scheme of things. God's great enabling power is way better than our natural wiring. It's way better than our natural giftedness. It's way better than reality would say we could or could not do. So we just have to say, I'm just, I'm just not willing to do it. I'm not willing to put forth the effort. That's what we're told in verse 12. Because our unwillingness is all that holds us back. Now we're told in verse 12 to work out your own salvation. It's important to see that we're not told to work for our salvation. Instead, we are told to work out our salvation. Since we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. And now we are to work hard to show the change that Jesus has made in our lives. And in the phrase work out, 
I had an interesting meeting according to one of my commentaries. It was normally used in three different ways. One was in relation to a math problem. The idea was to work hard at solving the problem, to work as long and hard as you need to in order to finish the problem and ensure that you came up with the right answer. A second meaning was in relation to harvesting a field. And the idea that it was used for was that you were to work hard to ensure that you completely harvested everything in the field. You worked as long and hard as you needed to harvest every bit of grain or whatever out of the field. And the third meaning was in relation to mining. The idea is that you were to work hard to be sure that you got all the ore out of the mine. It was to work as long and hard as necessary to get every piece of ore out of the mine. Now, those are pretty challenging pictures. Now, the last two are pretty physically challenging. The math one, not physically challenging, but evil nonetheless and difficult. I don't like math. Um, but they give us a picture, not of making a decision and letting it go. I'm going to finish that problem. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything unless you do it, does it? I'm going to harvest the field. Go do it, young man. I'm going to mine. You've got to get in there and swing that pick and do whatever it is you do and blow stuff up and all of that. You can't do those things from a decision. You have to do them through hard, often repeated effort. And even though God gives us the desire to do something, and even though God gives us the power that we need to get it done, understand it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. We'll have to work long and hard to make the changes that God wants us to make, to do the things that God wants us to do. Living out what God is doing in our lives will not necessarily be easy. Do not believe things that say, if you do it, it will be easy. If God wills it, it will be easy. Because I don't know where that comes from, because it certainly does not come from Scripture. Think about God working to deliver Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, God did it, right? He gave Moses all the power he needed. He gave him the desire and the power to do it. But was it, was it easy leading them out and leading them to the promised land? Not from what I can tell. From my reading of it, it was, it was downright difficult. Early days were rough. The people turned on Moses. They griped all along the way after they were delivered. Things got worse before they got better. They wandered further than they imagined, longer than they wanted. It wasn't necessarily easy. Think about Joshua taking the promised land, leading the Israelites and take the promised land. God gave him the will to lead the people. God gave him the ability to lead them to victory. How many battles did they have to fight? And battles, they were with swords and shields and axes and bows. Some of them, they marched all night and then fought all day. That's an awful lot of effort. Now, did, did they do it or did God? Well, as they marched and fought, God made the sun stand still and rained hell down from the skies to kill the bad guys. And in the, in the end, he killed more people than they did. But did they still have to put forth the awful lot of effort? Absolutely, they did. Think about God working in David to make him king over Israel. It was God's choice. God gave him the desire. God gave him the ability. Was it a, a smooth sailing to the throne? No. He spent several years running from the king who did everything he could to kill him. Fought several battles along the way. Had his wife and stuff taken. All kinds of bad things happened to David as he waited to ascend the throne. Even once he became king, there were significant battles to fight. But God gave him the power to do it. Think about the prophets. The apostles. Did Jeremiah do what God wanted him to do? Yeah. God gave him the desire. God gave him the ability. Did Jeremiah have an easy ministry that everyone loved? Nope. Hard life. Lots of time in prison. Beaten a few times. The apostles suffered the same fate. And, and we could look at, at anyone God sent to do anything. And you're going to find God initiates... God gives the desire, God gives the ability, and then they work awful hard in God's power to see those things accomplished. Everything that they did was beyond 
their ability to do it. Everything they did was beyond their own natural ability. It stretched them to the limits and beyond. And it will be exactly the same for us. Anything God wants us to do will stretch us. Anything God wants us to do will challenge us. Anything God works in us to give us a desire to accomplish, we will look at it and we will say, I don't see how that is possible. I'm at the place in my life now where I think that if we are not doing something that we perceive beyond our abilities and our limits, we probably aren't following God that closely at all. Because anyone God called and anyone God gave a desire, it was always something bigger than them. And here's why I think God does that. I think it's intentional. I don't think it's accidental. I think God does it on purpose so that we go beyond our limits. I think God does it on purpose to show us not what we can do, but what He can do. God stretches us beyond our abilities so that we don't say, look at what I have accomplished. So that at the end, all the glory and all the honor go to God alone for what has been done. We don't have time this morning. But go this week and read Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon. Perfect example. God gives him a desire. God gives him the ability, but his army's too big. Whittle it down, whittle it down to a number that is greatly outnumbered by the bad guys. And he says, that way, I'll get all the glory. It's exactly what God does. So what are you doing right now that is hard work and is stretching you beyond what you think are your limits? In what ways are you putting into practice what God is doing in your life that's requiring you to live by faith and not by sight? For all of us, there should be something. There should be something that we're working hard at doing in response to what God has, done, has dealt with us about in our time with Him. And it should be something that probably scares us just a little bit. As believers, we must be diligent to work out our salvation. This, must, this means we must always do God's will and God's power. So first, embrace my personal responsibility. Always do God's will and God's powers. And then finally, understand the reality of accountability. I want you to notice something interesting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Think about that. We're to work out our salvation, to do the things that God is dealing with us to do. We're to do them in fear and trembling. Now, from what I can gather, the fear and trembling is in response to what Paul has revealed about Jesus in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those under the earth, of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it is because of who Jesus is that we work hard to show the results of the salvation He has given us. Right? We, we work hard to take who Jesus is and we let that motivate us to work hard. And a part of the idea is the idea of accountability. The idea that one day we'll have to give an account to God for the way that we have lived our lives and how we have responded to Jesus and the things that He has called on us to do. And knowing that, it leads us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And I think part of the idea of fear and trembling is knowing that the universe has a ruler and we ain't it. That there is a higher authority that we will give an account to in our lives and it's not me. There is someone greater and far more awesome than me 
And I will stand in judgment before Him. Now that's, that's pretty deep stuff. In the modern church, we don't associate the fear of the Lord or the, the, the reality of accountability to the Lord as one of the things that motivates us to work out our salvation. I mean, I don't know anywhere. I mean, there, you don't find a whole lot of books. Fear the Lord, serve God. Right? Those aren't big sellers. So I don't know where we see it. And, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not saying everybody else. I, I don't know that, that I consider that like I should. I don't know that if I were to be fully honest, I could stand up here and say, I work hard at working out my salvation every day of my life with fear and trembling because the world, the universe has a ruler and I'll have to give an account to him in my life. But the Bible says should be. The Bible says that should be there. The Bible is clear. I think sometimes in our desire to rush past and to be sure that we're, people don't confuse us with having a works-based salvation, we rush by the idea of accountability. But the Bible is clear that we will give an account for our lives. Now, I didn't, I didn't put this on the screen, but write this down for later use. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. That's one of the verses in your handout talks about all our works being judged on that day. Now, the Bible makes clear that this judgment will not determine our eternal destination. That all our works can burn up and we still go to heaven. But there's an accountability there. And so here's what I wonder. Is it possible that we have rushed too quickly past the judgment part and got to the part that says, oh, but I'm still saved, so it's okay. Have we, have we settled for a salvation that says, well, as long as I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter if I have anything that burns up or anything that, rely, that lasts that I can toss it at Jesus' feet. As long as I'm going to heaven, that's all I care about. And I think we have. And here's how I know we have at times. Because we ask things like this. Will that send me to hell if I do that? What are we saying when we ask that question? We're saying, how close can I get to hell without falling in? We're not saying, how close can I get to Jesus? How much can I do for His glory? How much can I do to, to serve and honor Him? What we're saying is, what is the bare minimum I have to do to keep from going over the precipice in the lake of fire? And whatever that bare minimum is, that's what I'm going to do. That's what we say. And according to what we read in Scripture... I don't think we should have that mentality. I think we have often become too laid back in the way that we work for our Lord and the way that we show the results of our salvation. And I'll be honest with you. Up until recently, if I heard somebody say something about serving God in any way out of fear of the Lord, my mindset automatically went, they were legalistic. They didn't really understand grace. They didn't quite grasp the way things were. Now, Paul was certainly a, a grace guy. Most of what we know about grace, Paul wrote about. And yet, Paul said that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other places, Paul said, that the knowing the terror of the Lord is what motivated him to, to try to persuade men. And so it provides a, an interesting tension we have to live with, doesn't it? I, I am saved by grace through faith in Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. So my works add nothing to my salvation. They don't make me closer. They don't make God love me more. They don't make me more saved. And yet, I am to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. So how do we resolve the tension between grace and works? And I think we reconcile it by remembering that biblical grace is not a ticket to passivity. Grace is not an excuse for laziness. 
Paul clearly taught that that grace had a life-changing effect upon your life and that this life change led you to do things differently, to be differently. Well, let me give you some verses to look up this week. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Titus 2, 11 through 14. And all of these are grace passages that emphasize work. So here's what you'll see. You'll see that grace is a uh, that grace is not opposed to merit. Grace is opposed. Grace, I'm sorry, my head. Grace is opposed to merit. It is not opposed to work. Grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit. Nothing we do earns our salvation. Nothing we do pays God back for our salvation. But everything we do is because of our salvation. Grace motivates us greatly to serve Jesus. And seeing it this way and being motivated to work out our salvation by the fact we will give an account to God for how we've lived, it's not legalism. And it's not trying to earn our salvation. It is a recognition that the world has a ruler. That I am accountable to this ruler. This ruler is working in my life to accomplish his will. And most importantly, this ruler is not me. We are not the center of the universe. We will give an account to the one who is. So what are you doing right now in fear and trembling that's in response to how God is working in your life? There should be something. If, as you look at your life, you can't see any way that God is working in your life or any way that you're different because of God working in your life, then you should see that as a problem. You should see that something is not as it should be. As believers, we must be diligent to work out our salvation. And this requires us to understand the reality of accountability. Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.